Today on CityCast DC, the DC History Center just unveiled a new exhibit to celebrate LGBT History Month. And it's easy to think of DC as like one of the gayest cities in America. But the community hasn't always felt welcome here. Gay federal employees were actually forced to stay in the closet as recently as the 90s. Author Jamie Kerchick is here to share the history he uncovered for his book, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. It's Monday, October 17th, 2022. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. So in this book, you describe D.C. as simultaneously the gayest and most anti-gay city in America, which is a great line. But what does it mean? Well, for a long time, the uh, skills that make one successful in D.C., I would argue, were skills that gay men in particular were uniquely positioned to hold. So discretion, the ability to work very long hours because they don't have a family, loyalty to one's boss, diligence. Many of these skills were created or honed by being in the closet. And this is very much a type. It's an archetype, I think, of sort of gay men in a particular era, uh, the era that I write about from the New Deal, say, to the turn of the century. I think that made Washington a very attractive place for gay people and gay men in particular. Yet at the same time, it was also extremely anti-gay because you could not be open. You could not be a gay person and work for the federal government for the duration of the period that my book Examined. So it creates this real sense of tension for gay people and a real sense of, of vulnerability. It's incredible the, the vibe of fear that is shot through this book, that at every turn, people of goodwill, people of ill will, people you don't expect, people you expect are ready to weaponize being gay against people for any number of reasons. Yeah, and it's just very important to remember that it really wasn't until the late 1970s or 80s that homosexuality becomes a sort of partisan issue, right, in which sort of liberals or progressives embrace it as a cause. Prior to that, everyone in politics was essentially homophobic. It was not a right or left-wing issue. There was no dis distinction between conservatives and liberals in general. So it, I'm not saying all this to score political points. I'm just showing the ways in which homophobia was a weapon that anyone would use. So, like, in the history of Washington, we know that the the federal government as the biggest employer here uh, has really sort of shaped the city. Mm -hmm. And uh, often for the better, it was national, federal uh, members of Congress who pushed a slave trade ban on D.C. that the mostly Southern locals didn't want to have. The fact that Black people could get jobs on merit right. here is one reason that Black middle class grew so much. Yeah. With gay people, it's a, a really different story, the relationship with the federal government. Well, it's, it's sort of like night and day. We could start actually with the State Department, which sort of had a reputation perhaps for being a somewhat more welcoming place for gay men in particular, because they'd offer them an escape, right? If you were of a certain class, obviously to work in the State Department in the 30s or the 40s was almost universally, these were privately educated men with, with private incomes, basically, to be able to afford this. And so the State Department gets a reputation, perhaps, for being a little more open than most other institutions. By no means was it a welcoming place for gay people, but relative to the time. And then there's a backlash to this during the McCarthy era. So this is the Lavender Scare. The Lavender Scare, right. This is at the outset of the Cold War when, when America is suffering all these setbacks. And the communists are taking over China. They're on the advance in Central and Eastern Europe. 
And this gives rise to McCarthyism and the Red Scare. But part of the Red Scare is this lavender element of it. And so, yes, there's this absolute purge of gay people, not only from federal agencies, but from federal contractors. So wait, just to be clear, you said there was a purge. There was like a formal ban, like gay people may not work in the federal government. An executive order in 1953, April 1953, signed by Dwight Eisenhower that bans gay people from holding government jobs and specifically makes homosexuality a prohibition on having a security clearance. So this was this idea, the security clearance thing, Mm. and and secrecy is such a theme through this book. But one of the ways you accrue power in the federal government is to have a security clearance, to be able to be trusted with the, the country's secrets. And gay people were denied security clearances on the logic that this meant you had a secret and any secret, whether it's like a gambling addict or you cheat on your wife or whatever, any secret could be exploited by someone looking to blackmail you. But you write that there you couldn't find a single example of someone being successfully blackmailed into spying because they're gay. No, not in America. Uh, The State Department actually commissioned a study in the early 1990s around the time of the gays in the military debate. They analyzed over 100 cases of espionage of American government workers in the intelligence community who were accused or convicted of espionage. And only six of them were gay and not a single one of them had done it for blackmail reasons. They did it for money, uh, which is the common reason in cases of espionage. But it's almost like evidence didn't matter. Homosexuality was this terrible, or it was seen as this terrible, awful thing. It was, in fact, the word was often not spoken. Got it. So I imagine it was pretty hard to get a lot of people to speak up about this. And obviously a lot of people you write about are dead. Talk about how, I mean, this is a book full of secrets. How did you find them? Talk about your research a little bit. Well, it involved a lot of digging. And I'll just talk about two stories. I think two of the biggest scoops, I would think. The first concerns a close aide to Lyndon Johnson, President Johnson, named Bob Waldron. And he was all prepared to join the White House staff when a civil service commission investigation, a background check, turned up evidence that Waldron was gay. And like that, he was dropped. He was banned from the White House grounds, uh, and his career in politics would be over just on the eve of his joining the White House staff. So what happened to him? He ends up later becoming an interior decorator in Washington, one of the leading ones, in fact. So he has a very successful career in that field. But I discovered his story through a Freedom of Information Act request. I knew that Waldron, I knew of his existence. I knew that he had left the Johnson orbit. It was sort of unclear why. I knew he was gay. And so I suspected that there would probably be an FBI file on him because it was the FBI that was involved in a lot of these cases of expelling gay people from the government, the FBI and the Civil Service Commission. So I filed a Freedom of Information Act request and it was taking a long time. And then in the summer of 2019, I received a 1,000 page FBI file, entirely unredacted. Um, a thousand pages. A what on earth can pages. fill a thousand pages? Dozens of interviews with people, right? This is what the government does when you're applying for a job, right, in the White House, is they, they conduct interviews with all sorts of people. And so I had the entire Civil Service Commission background check into Robert Waldron. I had the FBI did a subsequent background check on him during the Walter Jenkins scandal, which is a very famous gay scandal in the Johnson administration. It was his chief aide. Walter Jenkins was arrested for having sex in the YMCA bathroom around the corner from the White House just before the 1964 election. That was a front page story. But when that story broke, the FBI launched a second investigation into Waldron. Still gay. Still gay, but they were very concerned (laughs) because then this goes from being just one isolated 
instance of one gay aide. Now there's two gays around Johnson. And you have to remember in this era, it's very similar to anti-Semitism. If there's like two gay people within the vicinity of each other, then there's a conspiracy. They just, it just can't be happenstance. There has to be something dark and nefarious going on. So anyway, I got this 1,000 page FBI file. And from that, I was able to craft this new story that had never been told before that I think is very representative of the stories that many people endured in this book. And then I would just say the next big find was in Ben Bradley's papers. He's a longtime editor of the Washington Post. Well, yes, and I was um, assuming that there would be material in his papers, right? I mean, he has hundreds of boxes of stuff. If you're doing a book about the history of gay Washington, you have to consult those papers. And I did find things that I expected. You know, there's a folder on AIDS and how the Post covered AIDS. There's, there was a folder on the Jenkins scandal. And then I saw this folder, and it was entitled Ronald Reagan, Allegations About. And that got my journalistic nose interested. And I pulled it out, and in it, in this folder, were all these notes and memos from various Washington Post reporters, and there were documents concerning an alleged right-wing homosexual network controlling Ronald Reagan. Uh, and it turns out that you had a group of moderate Republicans basically using this fear that Ronald Reagan was controlled by a right-wing gay network, and they were trying to expose it and perhaps even stop Ronald Reagan's nomination on the eve of his being nominated in, in 1980. In your research, you came across a bunch of crazy like euphemisms and sort of mm. code language as people discuss gays. Can you talk about some of it? Well, there's the biblical references where it's referred to as a, a sin not to be named. So it's unspoken. You can't even say it. There's a senator in 1942 who refers to it as a crime too loathsome to be mentioned in the presence of the ladies and gentlemen who are in the rafters in the audience gallery of the United States Senate. Richard Nixon refers to Whitaker Chambers and Alger Hiss as being that way, which is a recurring term, actually, that way, describing people as being that way, uh, was for being gay. Um, there's the Lavender Lads, the Lavender Lads at the State Department. Sexual deviant, I think, was probably the more respectable term. That's the one that you would often find in congressional reports and whatnot, or sexual degenerate. I think I may call my band the Lavender Lads. Yeah, that's a great name. We've got all these bad actors in here, but one of the heroic figures mm. in this book is a guy called Frank yes. Kameny, who's a, a genuine DC hero. Will you tell us about him? Frank Kameny is a, was, I should say, a Harvard-educated astronomer who moved to Washington and got a job at the U.S. Army Map Service, which was the predecessor to the Geospatial Intelligence Agency. This is in the mid-1950s, right? So it's right at the height of the space race after the launching of Sputnik. Men like Frank are in very high demand, people with that expertise. And in 1957, he is fired for being gay. And what he does, which no one had done at that point in American history, was he says, I'm going to challenge this using my own name. And I'm going to effectively come out and challenge this firing. Because this notion that I am somehow susceptible to blackmail is rendered obsolete if I'm coming out and acknowledging it. And there's nothing about me, there's nothing about being gay that makes me any less qualified to serve my country. And he, not to pick on the ACLU, but not even the ACLU will take his case. This is what the place of the homosexual was in America in 1957. He has to write his own legal briefs. And he tries to argue his case up to the Supreme Court, but they won't hear it. In 1961, he founds the Washington chapter of the Mattachine Society. They had their first meeting in room 120 of the Hay Adams Hotel. And you've said that's like as important a moment as uh, some. I, I do. I believe that meeting in room 120 
of the Hay Adams in August 1961 should rank up there. Because when you think of the arguments that were made for gay equality in this country, they're really formulated by the Mattachine Society of Washington. Frank is constantly referring to the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. He's making very patriotic arguments grounded in the founding ideals of American democracy. So your book, it's like mainly by intent about company town, Washington, yeah, federal yeah, DC. Yeah. But as a local, one of the things that uh, I loved was the way sort of the, the history and, and shape of the hometown mm. keeps popping up with these just random asides, like how Annie's Paramount on 17th yeah. Street became a gay hangout. And then these characters, people I'd never heard of. Will you tell us about Odessa Madre? Yeah. She was amazing. One of the reviewers referred to Odessa Madre as half Robin Hood, half Al Capone. And she was a black lesbian underworld figure and really the most powerful woman, I think you could say, certainly the most powerful black woman in Washington for the 1940s and part of the 1950s. She ran rackets, numbers games. She was a madam. She had a prostitution ring. She ran a club madre, a nightclub where some of the leading African-American artists of the era performed. It was a very popular hangout. She was reputed to be the only black woman allowed into Garfinkel's department store, which was a segregated department store, but she was apparently so respected, uh, they would allow her in. She bragged about owning half the police force. She's a very, uh, she's an incredible, colorful figure. Or you introduce us to H. Lynn Womack, the yes. porn king. Yeah, the porn <laughs> king of Washington. He was a 300-pound albino, former college philosophy professor and pornographer who was one of one of the leading publishers of what used to be called Beefcake magazines. And these were erotic publications, basically the gay version of pinup magazines that, you know, soldiers would have, right, of Marilyn Monroe and women and scantily clad women. This was basically the, the gay male version of that. And he had a publishing empire, first on 14th Street and then on Capitol Hill. And he was constantly fighting local police and the federal government over obscenity charges. And actually his case, his fight against the obscenity charges against his magazine empire was the first gay rights case that the Supreme Court heard in 1962. Jamie, is there any single takeaway you want uh, people to get from this book? I think it is that when a subject is deemed too loathsome to mention, when something is forced to be secret, when you're not allowed to talk about something, when an entire group of people are not allowed to live openly, that subject and those people become very easy fodder for conspiracy theories. You can basically say the worst things about them. And one of the themes in my book is actually that whatever happens to be the worst enemy that America is fighting at the time, it gets associated with homosexuality. So during World War II, high-reaching officials in the government genuinely believed that the Nazis were a gay cabal. And they actually entertained a proposal to, to recruit patriotic homosexuals to infiltrate the Nazi command, right? Because they genuinely believe this. And then during the Cold War, homosexuals are conflated with communists. And then once gay people start coming out of the closet, and once the average American starts to know gay people, I mean, we now have the latest Gallup poll that shows nearly every American knows an openly gay person. It's something like over 95%, right? It becomes much harder to sustain these fears. And so that's my general takeaway, is that when something is corralled or segregated from discussion. We're ignorant about it, and it can lead to all sorts of awful bigotry and, and hatred. Jamie, thank you so much for uh, talking with us. This was fun. Thanks for having me. And some quick news before you go. 
D.C.'s housing authority might have some new reforms coming its way and not a moment too soon because they just got hit with a scathing, scathing federal audit about how they're managing local public housing. A bill from council member Alyssa Silverman and Attorney General Carl Racine would impose new training requirements on the 13-member board that the feds say was asleep at the switch. Meanwhile, D.C. police are warning locals, be careful about where you swipe your credit and debit cards. Officers have found 10 card skimmer machines in the district in the past month alone. These machines can steal your card number. But there are some steps you can take to avoid getting got. We'll link to them in the show notes. And lastly, it's time to vote. More than 50 ballot boxes are set up across the city. D.C. residents can drop off their mail-in ballots anytime before 8 p.m. on Election Day. That's November 8th. Mail-in ballots can also be dropped off at voting centers once early voting begins, or you can mail yours in. Note, the boxes look just like D.C. health boxes, so make sure you drop off your ballot and not your COVID test. Uh, that's all for today here on CityCast DC. I'm Michael Schaefer from Politico. If you enjoyed the show, share it online before LGBT History Month is out. We'll be back tomorrow with more news from around the city. Bye.